0: And a warm welcome to The Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is that time of the week where we're going to continue our series on the words of Jesus, who we are sort of referring this to as our red-letter edition. If you have a red-letter edition Bible, it would be the words of Jesus. And my guest today is Dr. Ed Glennie. He is the Interim Department Chair of Biblical and Theological Studies right here at the University of Northwestern. He got his PhD at the University of Minnesota. Um, and also Dallas Theological Seminary. He is going to talk about um, Matthew 22 today. Ed, welcome. Thanks, Bill. Great to be here. Yeah, I've wanted you to come in and be on the show for a long, long time, so this is kind of fun for me. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and you were recommended by Dr. Mark Muska, who I believe is listening. uh, Great. Hi, Mark. Hey, Mark. How are you doing? All right, (laughs) we'll see (laughs) So you have got some great discoveries in Matthew
1: 22, and we're excited to to, to jump into that. All right. Thank you. I uh, was thinking about what might be a good topic to look at in this Christmas season, and one thing I'm trying to do, and I think we all ought to try and do, is kind of focus on Christ in the Christmas season, so it's good to be doing the red-letter things. And uh, this is a passage that I'm going to direct our attention to today that Uh, is special to me, and I've really kind of gotten to know it maybe as well as uh, ever just thinking about this time together and preparing for this. So, the passage I'd like us to look at today is in Matthew chapter 22, and uh, it's in verses 41 to 46. Okay, but I need to set the context a little bit for that. So, um, this is a portion of the gospel the Gospel of Matthew, that has to do with Jesus last week in Jerusalem before okay. his crucifixion. Would, would, so, you, would you like me to do the reading? Well, uh, let, me, let me go ahead a little bit, okay. and and then I will have you do that. Okay. So, um, Jesus' triumphal entry on Sunday before he dies is at the beginning of chapter 21, and then most people think that on Monday he cleanses the temple, and then uh, the portion that follows that includes our passage in chapter 22 and perhaps all the way through chapter 24 probably takes place on Tuesday of that week. And Jesus is um, on Tuesday in the temple in a teaching time. He's teaching the people, the people are walking by, the religious leaders are there, and he gets into a lot of discussions with religious leaders that are recorded in the Gospels and some of them, most of them, are kind of controversial. And he's teaching in parables here, kind of aimed at these religious leaders. He talks about, for example, that he is the stone that the builders rejected, and they know that he's talking about them, that they are the builders. And then they try to trick him with questions about, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Uh, Or will there be marriage in the resurrection? Or what is the greatest commandment is one of the questions of the Pharisees. And he evades all their traps, and then he turns the tables back on them, and he asks the Pharisees a question in this passage we're going to look at today. And it focuses on the real issue, the issue of who is Jesus and who is the Christ and what... what. Uh, what does the Bible tell us really about who the Christ is and what they should have been expecting when they thought about the Christ? So, yeah, that's that's our passage. So, if you would read it, Bill, that would be
0: great. I would be happy to. Dr. Ed Glenny is our guest as we are uh, just jumping into our Words of Jesus uh, red letter edition series. I am in Matthew uh, chapter 22 starting in verse 41 and I will read through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah, whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions.
1: Thanks, Bill. Yeah. So Jesus here asks a question, asks the Pharisees, it says in the Gospel of Matthew, about the Christ. Uh, When he talks about the Christ, we're talking about the anointed one, the one that is called the Messiah the promised deliverer of Israel, and this is really a pretty softball question. It seems like um, there is one name for the Messiah. The name for the Messiah is the Son of David. And really, the answer is pretty clear from Scripture, but I I would like to today kind of go back and look at some of the Scriptures that are behind this. Awesome. So I, I want to start us in 2 Sam. Uh, Actually, I'm going to start this in Isaiah chapter 11, I think. I think we have time to look at these because Isaiah 11 is a picture of the Messiah. It says in the first three verses, a shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse. Of course, Jesse is David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And it then goes on to describe the spirit of the Lord on this shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse, and uh, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. And then farther on in, in the chapter, uh, we, we get some more of the idea that the Jews had about this, their Jewish, who the Messiah would be. In that day, the root of Jesse, this one being described here, will stand as a banner for the people's. The nations, that would be the Gentiles, will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And it goes on to describe the people of the northern kingdom called Ephraim and the southern kingdom called Judah coming together and and being gathered to this um, descendant from Jesse. And then verse 14, they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. So this one is described here as one who has the Spirit of the Lord upon him. When he comes, I skip some verses that talk about the changes that are going going to be made in the natural world. Apparently the curse will be taken off the natural world. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and so on. And then the peoples of Israel will be united and be drawn back to this one, and he will defeat their enemies. Israel will be a powerful entity. They will be a a great nation again. And um, I think a lot of Jewish people in the time of Jesus would have read and would would have thought of the Messiah in light of these kinds of things. He's Mm -hmm. a nationalistic deliverer who's going to come and rescue the nation and, and deliver them from their enemies and bring unity to the nation. And sometimes those times when he comes are described with as times of great prosperity and uh, blessing that God pours out on not only the nation of Israel, but upon the whole earth. So uh, we get a little bit of picture of him, but I, but I, I want to go just a little bit farther, if we could, also in describing him, and that's to the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7, because God makes a covenant with David. In Second Samuel 7, David gets settled here in his kingship, and he wants to build a house for God, and he tells the prophet Nathan that's what he's going to do, and Nathan has a dream at night, and God tell, tells Nathan that, no, uh, I don't want David doing that. Uh, I haven't had anybody build a house for me up to this point, and David's not the one that's going to do that. But God says, that reads in uh, the verse here, the chapter, 2 Samuel 7, the the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So God says to David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your father's, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. And this is probably referring to Solomon here specifically. He is the one who will build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this is getting uh, pretty good here. I'm going to establish it forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. That's covenant language God is using here. In this promise to David, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you and your descendants. But notice what God goes on to say. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men. Um, So David's descendant, this one that follows David, is not the Messiah, and Uh, some of David's descendants are clearly not going to be the Messiah. In fact, some of them are not going to keep this covenant with God that God is making, but God is going to have to punish them. But God says, My love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And then this amazing promise in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So this is an amazing promise. And when Jesus asks the Pharisees this question in Matthew chapter 22, whose son is the Christ, the answer is easy. Well, he's going to be a descendant of David. God promised David an eternal dynasty, an eternal house that would come from his loins that would be Uh, his descendants, and he would establish them forever. And they're described in Isaiah as uh, this descendant of David as leading the nation to great success and well-being. So uh, that's the answer that... we would expect. That is fantastic. And
0: this is what I call a deep dive, Ed. We're, we're, uh, well, we're, we're doing some work on this. I love that.
1: Well, I uh, thanks, Bill. I want to try and get us into the background of this. And I'd actually like to go one step further with it if yeah. I could. We'll do it after the break.
0: How's that? Sounds great. Our first break is just right uh, upon us. So Dr. Ed Glaney is our, our guest. We're in Matthew 22 because we're doing the, the words of Jesus. But we're we're doing a deep dive on this. We're We're learning a lot. We'll be right back. We want to pray for you. We all need prayer. We would love to pray for you. The Faith Radio team is serious about prayer, and we pray for specific listener requests every week. Share your prayer requests with us anonymously and securely on our website at myfaithradio.com. All right, we are doing a deep dive today with Dr. Ed Glenny, and I said, "Ed, well, I want to talk about the words of Jesus, and we're in matthew twenty two but boy, we're doing some great, great study time, Ed, and we've been in Second uh, Samuel seven and Isaiah eleven, really giving the context. This is a great study so far.
1: so where we where we were, Bill, thanks. we were talking about this question that Jesus asks his opponents those who had been arguing with him, the Jewish religious leaders, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they answer, he's the son of David. And the reason they do that is because of the passages that we had, some passages we just looked at and many others in the Old Testament scriptures that talk about the fact that David is the ancestor. He is the one through whom the promises of a Messiah are going to come this anointed king who will bless and lead Israel and whom they were looking for. But we saw that there it was a covenant that God made with David, and the covenant involved two parts. And if the kings, if David's descendants didn't obey God, he was going to discipline them or he was going to chastise them. And the psalmist picked that up, and I think it's important we realize that to understand what's going on here I'm in Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Uh, Ethan writes it. Uh, I think it's a psalm that was probably written about the time that the Southern Kingdom, which was uh, which of which the sons of David were the kings, when they were taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And this psalmist writes, "You said," he's talking to God here. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. He goes on and, and talks about this promise that God made. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I have bestowed strength on a warrior. I have exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant. With my sacred oil I have anointed him. He is he is the king, and his descendant, one of his descendants, is going to be this special messianic king. My hand will sustain him, my arm will strengthen him. Um, I'm in verse twenty four of Psalm eighty nine. My faithful love will be with him, and through my name his horn will be exalted. I will set his hand over the sea, his right hand over the rivers. He will call out to me, you are my father. I will also appoint him my firstborn and most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him forever. And my covenant with him will never fail. Mm. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. But then he goes on and says, if his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, if they violate my decrees and fail to keep my commands, I will punish their sins with the rod and their iniquities with flogging. But his line, verse 36, will continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It will be established forever like the moon, the faithful witness in the sky. But the problem is in the next verse here now, verse 38, because the Davidic king has been taken captive to Babylon, And there is no Davidic king on the throne during the intertestamental period. Uh, The psalmist writes, but you have rejected, talking to God, you have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and you have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruins And he cries out near the end of Psalm 89, Remember how fleeting is my life, for what futility Uh, you have created all men. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself? Verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love, which in your faithfulness you swore to David? What's happening here, Lord? What's going on? And these kings, uh, the Davidic kings, In the intertestamental period, if we went to the genealogy in Matthew, there's a whole list of nobodies. We don't know who they are, where the Davidic line passed on, but no one was seated on the throne. And uh, that gives us pause about this. How is the Lord going to fulfill this promise to David? And Another question that would come up, you know, when we think about how God's going to do it, there's one of two ways he could do it with a perpetual line of kings who would be kings one after the other or with one king who would be eternal if that would be possible. So, you know, uh, it, they, they they believe God was going to fill, fulfill this promise. And I think probably when Matthew was written, they had seen a couple centuries before the Maccabees who had— uh, gained independence for Israel in the beginning of the second century BC. And of course, then they are defeated by the Romans and that line does not continue, but they had hopes um, uh, that this was going to happen. And they believed somehow God was going to raise up a Davidic king to do this. So The Pharisees are gathered together. Jesus asks them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They say he's the son of David. And I say, Pharisees, you are not wrong. Uh, This would have been the accepted reply. But Jesus teaches us here in this passage that that answer is inadequate. It's not enough. It's incomplete. The Pharisees are looking for a purely human nationalistic liberator And so Jesus asked them, I think, now, what is the real question of the passage. And that's when he said to them, if the Messiah is the son of David, then how is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? And then he quotes verse 44. These are all red letters. These are all words of Jesus for David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be David's son if he is his Lord? And they couldn't answer his questions here. So Jesus asks them another question, and he refers here to Psalm 110. It's the most often quoted psalm in the Psalter, quoted very often in the New Testament. And you might be, we might be familiar with some of the other verses in this psalm. It's just a short psalm of seven verses, but uh, verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and promises a Melchizedekian priesthood for this one who's being described here. Um, Jesus says to them, um, how is it then that David says this? We might note that uh, the only way we know who wrote these Psalms is by the superscripts that are on them. And our superscript says it's of David, and Jesus took that to be correct. Uh, Jesus felt these superscripts were authentic or, or that they were accurate, and he agrees with that, and he shows us that this psalm clearly is written by David, and the superscript is correctly here, correct here. He goes on then, he says, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, uh, David speaking the inspired word of God, says this in the psalm? And um, he believes also that the psalm is referring to the Messiah. And as I looked at this, I thought, "How does he get this? How does he? Uh, where, where does that come from?" I think there are several reasons we can be sure that it's talking about the Messiah here. Mm-hmm. Glenn, and, and maybe we can pick that up after
0: the break because we're Sounds up to a hard yeah. break here. Doctor Ed Glenny's my guest, and we are. Uh, in Matthew 22, although we've been in many other places today, but it's all for the context. <laughs> Incredible study. And We'll take a short break and be right back. Dr. Ed Glennie with me here in studio. He's the Interim Department Chair of Biblical and Theological Studies right here at the University of Northwestern. We are in Matthew 22, but we're adding lots of context to this discussion, and I think, Ed, we're going to jump into Psalm 110 to add more context.
1: We are, Bill, because that's the verse now that Jesus picks up, okay? So the Pharisees have said, whose son is the Christ? He is David's son. Right, right. Uh, That's accurate. Uh, As far as it goes, it's not wrong. But Jesus says it's accurate, but it's it's inadequate. It's not enough. And he asks them another question then. How does David then call uh, the Messiah, the Christ, how does he call him Lord? And he quotes this verse that we're looking at, Psalm 110, 1, because the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I put your enemies under your feet. Now, I, I'm, I think this psalm is talking about the Messiah. First of all, Jesus says it is, and obviously the Jewish leaders believed it was because they pick up on what Jesus is saying here. It talks about someone who's seated at the right hand of God, which is generally understood to be the place of the Messiah. It, uh, it talks about one who's going to crush the enemies of Israel which we looked at a few moments ago, is something that we expect the Messiah to do. And this one described in Psalm 110.1 is not only a king who sits at God's right hand as his vice-regent in the place of authority and the place of honor, but he is also a priest he is uh, ordained to be an eternal priest, to bring in a new order of priesthood different from the Levitical priest under the Old Testament law, we learn mm-hmm. in the book of Hebrews. Now, so so let's, we're, we're going to have to concentrate now. And if you're in your car driving, try to stick with me here because uh, this, even when we're sitting looking at it, it's uh, it's something that we have to, you have to think about. So Jesus says, how is it? that David calls the Messiah Lord in Psalm 1101. And he quotes it, The Lord said to my Lord. So there are three people involved in this little verse from Psalm 101. There's the Lord, which in the Hebrew is Yahweh, the um, personal God of Israel, the the holy name that Jews would not even uh, repeat or pronounce because it is so holy. Yahweh said to my Lord, to my Adon. Uh, Yahweh said to, this is another name for God, uh, Adonai or Adon. And uh, uh, the the word can be used for a master, for for someone who is superior to you. It can also be used though for God. And... um, here, the Lord said, David says to my Lord. So David's the third character here. Yahweh is speaking to David's Adonai, David's Lord. So there are three people involved in here in, in this. And the Adonai, the, the Lord of David, is the son of David. He's the Messiah. He is David's Lord. And the big question now, here's our question. How does David, who is the king of Israel, call this descendant? Remember, the Messiah is the son of David, his descendant. How does David, who is the king of Israel, call his descendant his lord? Hmm.
0: That's the big question, Does that isn't make it? sense, Bill? Or is it ever? Okay, yeah.
1: that's the issue. Yeah, And that's what Jesus is pushing the Pharisees on here. Uh, the Lord, Yahweh, David says, said to my Lord, speaking of the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So... In the context of the book of Matthew, there is no doubt, I don't think, in the reader's mind about who is being described here. We have been, through the genealogy in Matthew 1, we have heard about a virgin birth. We have heard about uh, Christ Jesus, who was uh, the Son of God and the Son of Man, Uh, And uh, we have heard God say when he was baptized, this is my beloved son. We have read about the transfiguration in chapter 17, where God says, this is my son, hear him, listen to him. So I think in the context of Matthew, if we have eyes to see, we start thinking and realizing here, this is describing Jesus, this is talking about Jesus. And I might just ask you, um, you know, well, be- before I do that, but let-, let me just summarize it one more time now here. So God is saying to David's Lord, who is also his son, sit at my right hand, you're the Messiah, until I put your enemies under your feet. You you are Going to you, you are going to be the Jewish Messiah. You are the Jewish Messiah, and I'm going to put your enemies under your feet. Now, uh, I came across an interesting idea on this bill, and I think I'd just like to share it, please. I, I'd never thought of this before. It's from a book written by a friend of mine called "Is Jesus Truly God?" Greg Lanier. Greg teaches at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, and we've been involved in some writing projects together. And I'd never thought of it this way, but when did the Lord say to David's Lord, sit at my right hand? I think that's a good question. I I never thought about it. I haven't either. Okay, so this is written by David. Mm -hmm. This is a thousand years before Christ died comes to earth incarnate, okay? okay? When David wrote this. Wow. David's about a 1,000 B.C. Okay. So Lanier suggests that what matters is that Jesus directly attests here that he, as the the pre-incarnate son of the Father, is the one being addressed by Yahweh here in Psalm 110, long before his human birth. Lanier suggests this is something that would have been spoken within the Godhead in eternity past,
0: hmm.
1: when God says to the second person of the Trinity, "Sit at my right hand." He writes, "It's a record of the Father and the pre-existent Son talking to one another in the heavenly throne room in times past, where God says this to the Son." And when I think about that, that David said this a thousand years ago, that makes sense. Okay, this isn't something that was happening originally when um, Jesus came to earth or something like that. It's something spoken way before describing the relationship between the Father and the Son. Now, it is used, this verse, Psalm 110, is used elsewhere. It is, I think, most clearly used in the book of Acts In Acts chapter 2, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of, of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So... Peter applies this passage to what happens to Jesus after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension when he ascends to God and is seated at God's right hand at that time. But it's very possible that this was also Jesus' experience before that time. And, uh, In his pre-incarnate existence, perhaps he also sat at that place. And then after the resurrection, the New Testament authors apply it also to his position in his ascension. In other words, uh, Jesus comes from his heavenly throne in his incarnation. And in a sense, he is re-enthroned when he returns to heaven after fulfilling his earthly mission. Perhaps that's true. We know for sure that he is seated at the right hand today, Mm -hmm. according to Acts chapter 2. What Jesus is trying to do here is not win an argument with the Pharisees. What he is trying to do is show them and us, what does the scripture say about the Jewish Messiah? Who is the Jewish Messiah? And we learn from this that the Jewish Messiah is not only David's son, a physical descendant of David, but he is also David's Lord. He is also, uh, we learn from the life of Jesus, David's Lord in a divine sense. He is God. He is the God-man god man And that's, by the way, how the promises that we saw in the Davidic covenant can be fulfilled. Remember, uh, none of the kings following in David's line were able to keep that covenant sufficiently that it might be fulfilled to them. Mm -hmm. But God sends his son, who, of course, as the son of God, is able to not only meet the requirements of the Davidic covenant— but also do things that no Davidite would ever be able to do as the God-man and satisfy the wrath of God for our sins as he pays an eternal price on the cross for our sins. So I think this is kind of amazing that uh, the way Jesus goes about this and uh, Jesus shows this from this Psalm 110 to the Pharisees here in this Tuesday, before he goes to the cross and dies on the cross for our sins, does this make sense? Is that
0: well? It, it does make sense. It you have to follow carefully. Yeah, and then yeah. You, you have to be familiar with some of the passages and some of the context. I mean, if you're uh, if you came to faith uh, in Christ six months ago, probably not. But if you've been a student be of Scripture for a long time, this is fantastic.
1: Yeah, so what we're trying to say is that, you know, Jesus is telling the Pharisees here in Matthew chapter 22, uh, and at this last week of his life, that your big question that you're missing is, who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? And you're thinking he's just a national leader who's going to rescue Israel and deliver them from their enemies. But he's much more than that. Mm-hmm. He, is, uh, he is going to be actually God in the flesh, the God-man who comes and uh, fulfills the promises to David as a man and yet uh, fulfills other promises and prophecies that have been made as the Son of God. And, and is able, therefore, to do what only a God-man could do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can see the confusion from the Pharisees. Yeah. If then David
0: calls him Lord, how yeah. can he be his son? Right. So
1: they're confused. Right. And you know, uh, the way this ends then, it's kind of interesting here in verses 46. There's some other things we may want to say about this here in a few moments. But no one could say a word in reply... And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They realized that, wow, uh, this is one that uh, brings in a whole new dimension mm-hmm. of who this man is and uh, who we should be looking for and what God is doing in this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I'm curious about the fact that it does end with from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And, and, uh, and
1: why do you think that was the way this chapter ends well i think it ends not just because of what we have looked at here in our short passage about who is the christ but they had been embarrassed in all the previous questions they had asked jesus also as they would ask him questions uh, you know for example should we pay taxes to caesar or or not and Jesus says, knowing their evil intent, he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose portrait is it? And they said, it's Caesar's. And so he says, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Mm-hmm. And, and he does that with the Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection. You know, he answers their question that they don't understand that Um, We will be like the angels someday. We won't be – there won't be marriage in heaven when they're trying to figure out uh, whose wife uh, a person will be if they have been uh, in a leveret marriage Mm -hmm. relationship where they've married a series of seven brothers. Uh, God help help the poor woman, right? (laughs) But, you know, know, so there are all these other questions going before – And then we go through those. We not only get to those, but then they realize, you know, David said this in the Spirit. This is Scripture. Right. This is in our texts. We all have believed this is talking about the Messiah, and we've never really seen this, that it's talking about the Lord said to David's Lord. Uh, This is someone greater than David who is going to uh, sit at God's right hand, in communion with God in heaven mm-hmm. and rule and reign until his enemies are put under his feet love is yeah. yeah dr ed glennie's my guest we're going to take one more break and be right back
0: we're studying matthew 22 this is the words of jesus we'll be right back back with Dr. Ed Glennie, and we're talking about Matthew 22. And during the break, we were going a mile a minute. And, Ed, I I do have to bring this up because I do find it fascinating. He never really comes out and says, I am God. No, he doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got a a monotheistic uh, culture where they're going to say, well, if he says, I'm God,
1: well, wait a minute. Yeah, right. More confusion, more anger. Right. So Jesus does all kinds of things that God would do. He identifies with uh, divine figures from the Old Testament, like the Son of Man in Daniel seven, who comes on the clouds and receives uh, authority from God the Father. Um, you know, but but again, um, we were talking about this, Bill and I, and I, I think the basic reason why Jesus doesn't say "I am God" explicitly. Is because that would be very confusing to a Jew and they they would that would you know they would know uh God is no one has ever seen God uh, and um, so Jesus is not we we learn that the Godhead as the New Testament develops is made up of three persons father Son and Holy Spirit and to avoid confusion I think with who he is he is divine but he is not what we would call God the Father. Uh, he is God the second person, God the Son, and so he uh, demonstrates that he is divine with all the things that he does and things he says and, and these uh, things he fulfills from the Old Testament, but yet there is a difference. He is God come in the flesh. He is the incarnate God, uh, not the Father, that uh, he talks about, in fact, even in Matthew chapter 11, he talks about his relationship with the Father there. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. These are Jesus' words again. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So, I, I, I think the uh Jews of Jesus time the the people of his time and I don't mean in any way to be speak derogatory of the the people the community uh of Jewish people among whom Jesus lived cuz I don't know that any of us would have done any better but uh there were things in the old testament scriptures that also could have maybe alerted them to the fact that they should be looking for something perhaps more than just a human descendant of David as the Messiah. I think of Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, Isaiah 9, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 4, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. It's talking about someone who is going to deliver Israel like Gideon did from the Midianites. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The point is, military equipment won't be needed any longer. And then listen to this, verse 6 of Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. There you have it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: He is called Mighty God, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it from that time on and forever. So here we have someone on David's throne who is called Mighty God, who is going to fulfill a Davidic covenant by reigning forever. Mm. as God promised David, that someone would rule on his throne forever. How did they miss that? Yeah, well, that one's one of the clearer ones, I think. Yeah, I'm I, i I'm not sure, Bill. I, I also think of Ezekiel 34. This passage came to my mind when if we have a minute that I can just mention this one. It's talking about the shepherds God's going to raise for Israel. And 11 times in... Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 11, uh, God speaks of himself as shepherding Israel. For this is what the sovereign Lord says I myself will search for my sheep and look after them as a shepherd. I will rescue them. I will bring them out from the nations. I will bring them into their own. Eleven times I will do this. And then you get to verse 23. And he says, "I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David." Now, just a minute. There's one shepherd. God says he's going to shepherd them. And then he says, "The one servant, the one shepherd, is my servant David." So again, we've got this description here of what God is going to do that combines a divine God, a sovereign Lord, with a servant David. Who are both doing the hmm. same thing that only one person does, hmm. which again is, I think, a hint of what we've looked at and what we've been talking about. These hints of the Messiah being more than just a descendant of David that we find in the Old Testament. So, uh, I, I find that I find that fascinating uh, that 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 would be the case. And when we get to the New Testament. Then we find out that um, this one, that this descendant of David, is the Christ, and he is uh, one with God the Father and God the Son. The Great Commission says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. It's singular. Mm. The name uh, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so, this reality of who this God is becomes more and more clear as we learn more about Jesus and learn more about God from the revelation now in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Ed, you have threaded some
0: interesting needles today.
1: Great. Well, I've been blessed by thinking about this, Bill. Thanks for inviting me to be involved here. Yeah, that's great. a,
0: A great study. And oh, good. I, I will be going through this again tonight because I oh. I, I never get stuff the first time through. I'm, I'm uh, a slow learner.
1: Well, I hope it's clear. And, uh, um, uh, some of this, yeah, I, I agree too. I've had to go over it quite a few times. And I hope I've been able to communicate it at least in a way that people can, can grasp the main ideas here of it. It's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. And maybe this Christmas focus on Christ and, Think more about him. He is the lovely, beautiful son of God who uh, is just, uh, you know, as a God-man, so amazing to, mm. to learn about and know know him.
0: Amen. Amen. Dr. Ed Glenny has been my guest, and we're so glad that we were uh, able to have him here today in the studio. And thank you for spending time with me. If you missed any of the show, you can always go to the podcast, check it out. I hope you have a great night. I'm looking forward to seeing you tomorrow. We'll have an extended version of Guide Talk. I'm looking forward to that as well. And then Dr. Greg Borgon will be joining us as well. Have a great night. See you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support.